All right, so last week, as we were discussing how chapters 25 through 31 are a unit, chapters 25 through 31 basically are a bunch of blueprints. It's a blueprint for the tent of meeting, its courtyard, the design, uh, the design specifications, the dimensions for everything that goes in the tent of meeting, in the most holy place, in the holy place, in the outer courtyard. It's a blueprint for every bit of clothing and, and all of the accoutrements that go with the priests and the high priests. It, it contains the recipe for the incense there to burn. It, it has all those blueprints. And we learned that in passages such as chapter 25, 1-8, and here in chapter 29, verses 30, 36-48, that, or 38-46, that, that the reason behind the tabernacle is that God might dwell among His people. Might dwell with His people. And the, the concept of dwelling is translated by the Greek word tabernacle. And so we, we see this in the New Testament when Jesus is said to have the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Word is tabernacled. And so Jesus is seen in His person as being the the personification of everything that the tabernacle represented. And we saw that that rather than getting bogged down in, in the details of what each little artifact and each little design feature of the tent and all of its curtains, that the tabernacle is to be conceived of as a unit, as being a piece of heaven on earth. And that to really understand the tabernacle, you have to go back to Genesis, back to Eden, and the relationship that was lost, and the relationship that is being recovered and restored. The relationship that is being celebrated and will ultimately be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. And so, the key to understanding the tabernacle is God's very intent for humanity in the first place. Fellowship and delight in Him. We saw in chapter 24 during the covenant-making ceremony that the elders of Israel were charged to ascend the mountain to a certain point and there they would worship God. And do you remember what the worship of God looked like? It looked like having a meal. And basking in His presence. Delighting in His presence. Now that concept right there, that delighting in the presence of another, that is the essence of worship. To worship someone. You, you may have seen someone who seems to fawn over another person. And we say, oh, you know, he, he, he worships the ground that other person walks on. And what we mean by that is not that the person is literally bowing down, but when we say that person A worships the ground that person B walks on, we mean that that person absolutely adores that other person. So the essence of the worship of God is the adoration of God. And that is what makes the difference between a worship that is genuine and joyful and to worship that is just a rote mechanical repetition of religious acts. And of course, we as religious people are all too prone to having a religion of rote repetition of religious acts. But the essence of what God wants is for us to bask in His presence, 
delighting in His presence, celebrating the relationship we have with Him. That is the essence of the concept known as, the, known as our communion with God. The communion that we have with God was celebrated by the Puritans. In fact, I would say probably none so much as John Owen. John Owen was a titan uh, theologian. He's one of the most prolific and brilliant theologians produced by Britain. Uh, and, and one of his chief concerns is for us to recognize our communion with God and to make much of it. And he defines communion with God he uses all these big theological language and rhetoric, but at the end of the day, communion with God is simply a celebration of our friendship with God. And to commune with God is just like meeting with your friend. To meet with God. And to celebrate the fact that you, you and I, that we are friends of the living God. Isn't that incredible? That we're friends. And so to celebrate that friendship is what it means to commune with God. Now this, this tabernacle and what it means still applies for us. Um, earlier this week, I'm sorry, Thursday to be precise, three days ago, a, a famous and well-known pastor in the Atlanta area published an interview in which he said that we make a better case for Jesus if we leave the Old Testament out of the argument. And this is on the heels of earlier comments this year where he said that we should unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. And I think uh, Al Mohler in his commentary, if you want to read it from Friday, write, writes the best uh, response I've seen. But, you know, saying that we're going to understand Jesus apart from the Old Testament is crazy. The Gospel writers go out of their way to show how Jesus is related to the Old Testament. And, and I'm reminded of what Jesus Himself does in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, Jesus, the resurrected One, is, is meeting with he intercepts and meets with some of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And after Jesus questions them because they don't yet recognize who he is, what does Jesus do in verse 17? Or 27, sorry. Beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he shows them everything that concerns him. Now, if Jesus can rightly be understood in his person or his work, apart from the Old Testament, then at best, Jesus was wasting His time. Or at worst, He was wrong. You see, according to Jesus, and according to the Gospel writers, and according to Paul, and Peter, and John, and Jude, you can't understand Jesus without understanding the Old Testament. And so when we see that the Old Testament sets up a pattern of worship that finds its fulfillment in Christ. We're seeing that God is on a mission from, with an overarching ark to bring all things together. So this Old Testament is part of your family history. We are adopted into a family with a rich legacy and history, and this is part of it. And I talked about how uh, last week, I'm, I said in passing, because I wanted to focus on the theology, I talked in passing about how the 
chapters 25 to 31 speak of the tabernacle and its, and its blueprints and everything associated with it. And the concept that undergirds all of it is the notion of something being sacred. And so the tabernacle can be understood in terms of sacred space, sacred servants, sacred service, and a sacred schedule. And so when the tabernacle is created, it's designed around the notion of sacred space. How you have the most holy place, which geometrically is a perfect cube. And it is the most holy place, or the holy of holies. But then going out from that, you have the holy place, which is just slightly geometrically imperfect. It's a rectangle. And there it's holy, but less holy than the most holy place. And then you exit the tent into the courtyard, which is a holy place you can't enter without making a sacrifice. But then going out of the courtyard, what do you have? You have the general populace, the general camp of the people of God, which is less holy, but still it's so holy that the people who are a part of the camp, who are a part of the community, have to keep themselves ceremoniously clean. And if you're unclean, you have to go outside the camp. So you get this notion of, of, of basically concentric rings, kind of like the water ripples where it's most strong in the center, but then they go out and out. And holiness sort of emanates from the center of the camp, from where God's presence is located outwards. Now even this, this notion of sacred space is important for understanding Christ, our church, us, and ultimately the world to come. If you think back to Eden, okay, God had made the world, right? And He called it good. But then He placed on a certain geographic spot, and if you listen to the Mormons, that spot was where? In Jackson County, Missouri. <laughs> anyway, so... I've been there, and I don't think it's paradise, but hey, whatever. Uh, anyway, so on a certain geographic spot, God placed Eden, and Eden was sacred space. It's where he placed Adam and Eve, his, his emissaries, and that's where God met with them. And they were called upon in their task to basically manage it and tend it and expand its borders. Until eventually, what would happen? The entire earth would be the garden. Or the garden would be the earth. Okay, that failed. So now you have a, a sacred community here. We're located geographically on a map. You have a tent. Inside it is the Ark of the Covenant where the very presence of God uh, is promised to be. And then emanating out from that, you have sacred space. And then, of course, we have the temple later. When the people of God are settled, they're no longer wandering. They have permanent houses, so God establishes a permanent house. And then, of course, we have Christ. When the new covenant comes, and no longer is God going to operate primarily through a theocratic nation-state, but rather through, a, through an international coalition of people acting as His emissaries and ambassadors, with local congregations serving as outposts of this heavenly kingdom, Christ Himself is God in the flesh. And He's sacred. 
But no longer is the sacred space a piece of dirt. The sacred space is this, move, is this right here. It's where we are. So when Jesus promises His people, where two or more are gathered together, there I am with you, He's speaking in the immediate context about His presence there in such a way that you have His authority for discipline in particular. But God's presence is there in a way that we can call this sacred space. And our assembly together as believers is sacred space. This, this, this room isn't sacred, but our gathering is. And we're called repeatedly the temple of the living God. Just like a building before, it's now us. Which is why in 1 Corinthians 6, we're told to be holy. Because our bodies are temples of the living God. So have nothing to do with sin. But then ultimately, as we spread out, as people come to know Jesus, and as churches cover the earth, eventually the Lord Himself returns, and we find in Revelation 21 that there is no more temple at all. Because now the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, and all the earth is sacred space. And so... That goes back exactly to what Adam was supposed to have done in the first place. Make the whole world sacred space. And so the tabernacle reminds us of God's missiological intent to create sacred space through the spread of the fame of His name. Because what were the nations supposed to do? Come and worship. And ultimately, that's what's happening. We can also look at it in the terms of sacred servants. Much is made in these chapters of him ordaining the sons of Aaron to the priesthood. And so the, the entire people of God are called for a sacred purpose. A set-apart holy purpose. He made every human being, but the people of God are going to be used for something in particular. And within the people of God, there's a, there's a family. The line of Aaron. And they are the priests. Now, it's kind of weird to our egalitarian mind to think that you know, if you were born from the line of Aaron, your purpose in life was to be a priest. It didn't matter if, you were, if, little, if, if little Jimmy woke up and wanted to be a fireman. I'm sorry. You're going to be a priest. It's the way it was. That was your family line. And it was, and it was very specific that no one outside of that line could become a priest. Okay? So these people were set apart for the purpose, but even though by genetics they were set apart, they still had to be consecrated. They still had to be dedicated to the Lord. They still had to be ordained, officially recognized to act in an official capacity on behalf of the people of God. And so, from time immemorial, we have understood that the people of God are mediated on behalf of by a God-appointed representative. That's exactly what the priesthood was. Sacred servants who were mediating on behalf of the people. That's exactly what Jesus does for us. He mediates on behalf of us. And so even in the New Covenant era, when we see that it's, Paul says that it's, it's, it's ministers who are stewards of the mysteries of God, 
we understand that the laying on of hands and of ordination is to set apart church officers as representatives of Christ's rule and reign here. It doesn't get passed down genetically by your father. It gets passed along through the special working of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, there's, there's no special spiritual significance in my mind, but different churches do different things differently. Some churches have the minister sitting up here to emphasize that he's acting in an official capacity as an officiant. I prefer to sit and, and carry the message that I'm a fellow worshiper. Different churches have the, the minister in, a, in some sort of robe or gown to emphasize their mediatorial function because the Apostle Paul refers to the ministry as a priestly ministry. We're not priests, but it's a priestly ministry. And I prefer to identify with the people. But the idea is that there is a group of people who are set apart by God, entrusted by God to do the work of God. Now, in the New Covenant, we are a kingdom of priests. We learn that in both Peter and in Revelation. Every single one of you has been endowed by the Holy Spirit and graced in such a way that you can do kingdom work in the world. You can. And you are empowered and authorized by God to fulfill the ministry He has set for you in the world. So what is it? And of course, ultimately, the day comes when every crown is cast at the feet of Jesus. And there's no more needing to tell your brother, know the Lord, because everyone knows the Lord. But for now, we have a ministry assigned to us. Israel largely failed because they thought it was by works and not by grace. So, my ministry is to proclaim God's Word and administer the sacraments and to hopefully encourage and admonish you to do your ministry. But each of us has a ministry. Each of us has a measure of the Spirit. And we have been set apart to reach a lost and dying world. Will we do it? Then there's the sacred service aspect where the priests are called to do very specific things. The Word of God tells how often they're supposed to change and mess with the lampstands. How often they have to change the bread. How often they have to sacrifice. What they're to sacrifice. It's very specific. Two times a day. Every day. Rain or shine. Summer heat. Winter cold. They're offering two lambs a day. And that's in addition to whatever sin offerings are being presented. That's in addition to what people bring as thanksgiving offerings, atonement offerings, guilt offerings, fellowship offerings. Two times a day. That's a lot. Now we, we have a sacred service. God has prescribed certain elements that we need to do when we gather together. Which is why we do what we do. But God has also called us to remember that He has given us these things for our good. And we'll get to that in a minute. And then of course, God has the sacred schedule. Chapter 31 ends by reminding the people of the Sabbath. You get the idea that God was reminding them of this point lest they get carried away in their over-exuberance and think that constructing the 
tabernacle was so important that they just needed to work 24-7 until it was done. Instead, God was saying, keep the Sabbath. Remember that in six days the heavens and earth were made, and on the seventh day I rested, so you rest. Keeping the Sabbath grates modern Americans. But we learn in Hebrews that a Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. Because the Sabbath itself was not about kicking it back and taking it easy physically. The Sabbath was always a theological point about entering the rest that is heaven. And as long as we sojourn and toil and labor on this earth, anticipating a future reality, then a Sabbath rest does remain. And by our ceasing from work, we are testifying both to the world, we're talking to ourselves, and we're proclaiming to God that we trust You to fulfill all Your promises and to keep everything You have said You would keep. So in those sacred categories or categories of sacred labels, the tabernacle is understood. Now, I think specifically that the tabernacle teaches us three important lessons about communion with God because that's what it's there for. It's not there so that lost sinners might become justified. Okay? You're justified by grace through faith. And no one ever got saved in the Mosaic era by being good enough. By offering the right sacrifice. You got saved when you recognized that you were a sinner in need of a Savior and you trusted God to do the saving. That's how we're saved. But in terms of enjoying your relationship with the Lord, the tabernacle was a great, great tool. Because there it was, in the middle of the camp. No matter where you looked, no matter where, as long as, long as you looked at the sinner, you could see it. And two times a day, at least, you could smell wafting on the wind. Something grilling. And you would know that God was there. And you could go meet with Him. Isn't that incredible? That it says here in, in chapter 29, that there I will meet with my people. Have you considered that God is sitting there basically with a tape, dinner table ready wanting to meet with you? That's incredible. The idea is that he's prepared a feast. Now come and enjoy it with me. So communion with God. Have you ever thought of your relationship with Christ as one of communion? And what do I mean by communion? Because we take communion, right? Well, the word communion is simply a translation of the Greek word koinonia, which is probably better translated as fellowship. It's partnering with someone to accomplish something. But when we speak of communion with the Lord, I think John Owens is right. It's basically celebrating our friendship with God. And what do friends do? They delight in each other's presence. Which means, what do you do? You seek them out. You try to converse with them. As often as you can. You have friends on this earth who may be separated from you by miles. And so you may not get to see them as often as you like. But you do seek them out. And your thoughts are of them. And you're happy when you're with them. 
This is what God wants for us. We've been reconciled. We've been adopted. And He's not afraid to call us friends. That's cool. Now I think that there are three things that the tabernacle drives home about practical communion with God and how to enjoy it. The first thing is this. Communion with God is maintained by making use of God's appointed means. Okay? Communion with God is maintained by making use of God's appointed means. So, those appointed means are the things that God has prescribed and set in place in which and by which He promises to meet with us. And so, it was not sufficient in the Old Covenant era if someone wanted to walk with God and talk with God and, and commune with God along the way, it was not enough for them to sit in their tent and think great thoughts of God. They had to get up and go to the tabernacle. They had to offer the appointed sacrifices. They had to make use of the very things that God had set in motion. That's so mundane for them. It's kind of boring to them. Yeah, I get it. They, they understood they couldn't have the Sinai experience all the time and life is mundane. But they saw the pagans around them having their worship services. And oh man, it was so much more inner. It was so much more participatory. Especially when you get to some of those fertility cult religions. And, you know, man, they got to have sensory overload. Oh. And then, and then you get to the therapeutic value of religion. You know, you hear the therapeutic value of a religion whenever you hear someone say, you know, they, they don't really care to talk about what's right or wrong or true or false. All they know is I did this and it made me feel better. I sacrificed my son and all of a sudden it started raining. Man, you know, I, don't, I don't need to hear about propositions. I just, I just know that I, I killed my firstborn and, and it started raining. Or I went and I did my thing at the Asherah pole and all of a sudden my, my sheep started reproducing you hear a lot of therapeutic value of religion stuff today well you, you can talk about I'm not a biblical scholar all I know is I did this and my life started getting better God's appointed means were boring to them and so they departed from them but guys brothers, sisters let's not kid ourselves we can't be wiser than God. God has given us a set of means and instruments by which He has promised that if we will make use of them by faith, He will indeed meet with us. So assemble together. Pray. Read Scripture. Faithfully exposit Scripture and listen to, the, listen to faithful exposition. Make use of the sacraments. And in these, God meets with us and comforts us, encourages us, and sometimes convicts us. And we find ourselves, as we make use of the appointed means, eventually growing and becoming stronger in our faith. Able to look beyond the apparent uh, inassailability of the therapeutic claims of some people's 
experiences. And we know, you know what? There's a whole lot of smoke and mirrors in the world. The devil is a liar. Things can deceive. But God is true. And He said this, and so I'm going to abide by it and walk in faith. The appointed means of grace are a system by which God meets with us. If you won't avail yourself of them, I can promise you, you will have a dry spiritual life. I can promise. Some people like to look at these monastic movements of the Middle Ages and, you know, oh, so-and-so went out in the woods wandering around in, in their underwear and they, and they starved themselves and they let the snow fall on their head and, and they went without sleep for three days and, and then they had a trance and, oh, they just experienced the warm love of the Lord. What? Their body was in shock and they were, in, and, and they were hallucinating. <laughs> okay? God doesn't call you to abuse your body. He calls you to make use of prayer and Scripture and sacraments and the assembly of the people of God. By faith, He will commune with you. And you will get to know Him. And you will get to walk with Him. But second, in addition to making use of God's appointed means, we need to, if we're going to commune with God, Rejoice in our mediated relationship. Now the people of God were presented with a system by which they could not offer their own sacrifices. The priests had to intercede for them. The priests had to do the killing. The priests had to do the cutting. The priests had to do the heavy lifting and the burning. And we sometimes think, well, wait a minute. We don't have that anymore. I can go straight to the Lord, right? I haven't. I have an immediate relationship. Immediate means without, without a go-between. Don't really raise your hand, but in your mind, raise your hand if, if you think that you have an immediate relationship to God. Okay, if you mentally raised your hand, you're wrong. Scripture tells us that we have a great mediator. We have a great high priest. Jesus Jesus even now intercedes for you. He mediates on your behalf right now. Now, it's the certainty and the surety of this great mediator's work that lets you feel like you have immediate access to God. Because it's because of Jesus that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. We can pass through those curtains. Enter the holy of holies, as it were. And petition God as a Father and as a friend, even as He's our Lord and King. It's our, immediate, it's our mediated relationship that is so often dismissed in Christian circles. Because the mediated nature of our relationship reminds us that in and of ourselves we are not acceptable. In and of ourselves, we have a problem. In and of ourselves, there is a gap between us and God. A relational gap between us and God. And the fact that we require a mediator tells us there is something wrong. 
And that's why it is jettisoned. You show me a church that makes little of God's holiness. You show me a church that exalts man's basic goodness and innate potential. And I'll show you a church that is more of a country club than a place of worship. Because when God's holiness is diminished and man's inherent excellencies are exalted, then what's the problem? God doesn't need to be placated by the blood of a mediator. My issues are not primarily that I've offended God. My issues are primarily that I'm offending my brothers and sisters and my fellow man around the world. And so the church becomes primarily concerned with horizontal concerns. And vibrancy and vitality and spiritual concerns and direction take a back seat. Which is why it is essential that you always hold before your eyes the fact that our God is a consuming fire. He is holy. And no one just goes into His presence. That's why it's so important for us to remember what Jesus said. That He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. There is one way. He is the mediator. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which, what? He must be saved. There is one mediator between God and man. Who? The man Christ Jesus. Okay? Now, rejoice in that. Rejoice in recognizing that in and of yourselves you are not worthy. That God has something to do and is still doing something in you. Rejoice that, you're, that you are now friends with a holy God. And rejoice that you have a mediator who makes that all possible. You see, when, when you're able to rejoice in that mediated relationship, man, th- and, and you got the other pieces together that you inherently are, are, are not worthy and, and God is, is, was imminently just to have left you to your own, th- then all of a sudden you have the, the makings for reverence and gratitude and joy and appreciation. And all those things come together to birth communion. If it's no big deal that God would save you, then why seek Him out? Go through your life concerned about your stock portfolio, your health, your kids, your grandkids, whatever. That spot on your neck. But if you're a worm who would rightly worthy of death, and God is the holy judge and king of the universe who reached down in mercy and saved you and, and, and has offered you a seat at His table, well then, why not run to Him and enjoy it? So celebrate your mediated relationship. And third, communion with God is maintained by living in light presence of God. Or living coram Deo before the face of God. Recognize that where you are, God is with you. This was the big point of God being with the people. And that the tabernacle was in the center of their camp. The idea is that where you are, I am with you. Now, He's not located in the center of the camp in such a way 
that, that if they, I don't know, went around and hid behind a mountain, God couldn't see them. That's not the point. The point is that as they're going through life, God is there. And what are we told by Jesus? I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And where two or more are gathered, there I am. And He's with us. So we are always, always in the presence of God. Which is why the people of the Old Testament are called to be holy. Which is why we are called to be holy. Because we dwell in His presence. Now recognizing that there's no mountain so high, there's no valley so low, there's no chasm in the ocean so deep, there's no desert so dry, there's no swampy jungle so thick that God is separated from you. You live before His presence. Every choice, every word, every thought is made in the, before the face of God. So be holy, but also celebrate that God is never abandoning you. You feel like you are alone. And I remember being out in the middle of nowhere Afghanistan Dropped out there by a helicopter and I'm with the troops. And, and, and yeah, I, I guess there was, there was a handful that came to the chapel service, but it felt like I was, I felt like I was literally in the armpit of the world. It felt like, I mean, the air stank. It, it, was, it was dirty. And, and, and I felt truly alone. But I wasn't. That was, that was my feelings lying to me. Wherever I am, God is there. And I'm before His face. And I have access to Him. The people of God could walk up and go into the tent and meet with God. And because we live before the face of God, I could go and pray and enter His presence immediately. Not in the way I just said before, but without any, without any delay. And you too, have access to God. You are before His face always. Now, I just think it's incredible how God is repeatedly called a fire. He appears in the burning bush as a fire. He appears on Sinai as a fire. At the end of Exodus, He shows up to consecrate the tabernacle by His presence and it's this fire. Hebrews, there's a reason why it says He's a consuming fire. Now, this same Holy Spirit of God that was there. That was hovering over the surface of the earth and separated land from water. That same Holy Spirit that inspired Moses. That same Holy Spirit that descended upon Jesus like a dove. That Holy Spirit has taken up residence in me and in you. So now we don't just live in His presence. He lives in us. That's awesome. So celebrate your communion with God. And don't be content for just coming and singing some songs and praying some prayers and, and, and listening for, you know, for 30, 40 minutes. Recognize that these are simply instruments by which the, the work of the Holy Spirit in you is meant to encourage your affection and adoration of Him that you might then go into the world and that we might tell people and model to people that we are indeed holy to the Lord.
That's the fruit of communion with God that the tabernacle was meant to promote. We needed it. Our forefathers in the faith needed it. We have Jesus who has now ascended into the very holy place of heaven and He sits at the right hand of God and we have access there because of Him. And the day is coming, brothers and sisters, when everything will be wrapped up with a tidy bow and the entire earth will be the habitation of God. That's awesome. Let's go ahead and let's pray.